We have to disrupt ourselves before other people disrupt us. The value is based on who you know that knows the industry and what the drivers of value are. There's no playbook. The array of challenges that are coming is so different and so much more rapid fire than we've seen before in this industry. Saying no to technology is not an option. Welcome back to the Disruption Matters podcast a five-part series produced by Private Equity International and sponsored by Alex Partners, where we're discussing the forces that are shaking up the economy and how private equity firms can best weather these drastic changes. In this episode, we're looking at disruptions to operations and finance teams, which of course is going to lead us to talk about two of the biggest issues on everybody's mind right now, supply chains and inflation. I'm Chase Collum, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Rob Katecki. Hey, Chase. Apologies for any audio problems. I used to have a soundproof office, but I had to rent it out to fill my gas tank. Oof. What are you driving these days? A 94 Bronco? A hybrid, but I live in California, so it costs about the same. All kidding aside, there are signs inflation is not staying sky high, and these supply chain issues are getting resolved. The reality is that no one knows how long these current trends will continue. I hope they don't last that much longer because I had to wait 11 months for a couch, so I'm pretty eager for us to move on from this. Uh, But speaking of couches, we did sit down with some folks who understand the nature and scale of the problem to hear how they're navigating these rough waters. Let me guess, we're all going to need a bigger boat? If only it were that simple, but I have heard that there are a few super yachts on the market these days. Anyway, Lisa Donahue of Alex Partners argues that while COVID is still part of the story, it's not the whole story. I'm not sure it's necessarily the health concerns relative to COVID as much as the disruption relative to different things happening around the world. You know, if you think about kind of a balancing effect, there's a winner and there's a loser. And there's folks that are on their front foot trying to anticipate what's happening and trying to put in place fail-safes and move forward and be creative versus only losing sleep and not really being action-oriented. I'd say that sounds easier than it is, but honestly, that still sounds like a tall order. It is. And all the more so when you think about how the impact of these various issues can change over time. Ethan Klemperer of Monomoy Partners explains their situation. One of the things that actually seems to have stabilized this year for us is the labor situation. And that was something that we wrestled with massively last year. And through, you know, amazing programs that, you know, to attract and retain talent, as well as a 25% average pay increase across our hourly workers in our portfolio, we were able to sort of stabilize the workforce and really eliminate that as one of the issues. But You know, what we've seen it replaced by, which wasn't something from last year, is tariff uncertainty, which is now something that as we sort of thought about our strategies and balanced our supply chains and diversified things, now this adds an extra twist to any project that was started in the last couple of years. The other thing is that as we've started to really stabilize some parts of the supply chain, we're now seeing, you know, sort of the early signs of demand reduction. And so it's beautiful because we finally figured out the supply side and now we're going to get to wrestle with the demand side. So as soon as one issue gets resolved, another pops up. There's also a sense that so many of these issues are completely out of the hands of operators these days. Take Ukraine for an example. 
it's impacting the supply chain, not just the food supply, but, you know, precious metals, copper wire. And right now, the concern about automotive financing is, you know, secondary to the fact that they can't get copper for production. So that starts to really disrupt the automotive supply chains. I think for a long time, manufacturers had been moving toward kind of lean manufacturing just-in-time, elongated supply chains. And I think that that has caused disruptive issues for all the different macro factors we've been talking about. And that's a big thing. And then a big question that a lot of folks are thinking about is the globalization point. Is that the right thing? Is that not the right thing? And, you know, this gets to the question of whether or not businesses can afford to bet on globalization anymore. I mean, how real is deglobalization? I'm not bought into it, but I think it will change. That's Simon Freakley, CEO of Alex Partners, who you'll remember from our first episode in the series. Of course, for the last 30 years, we've had the privilege of living in a world that has increasingly opened up. As an example, global supply chain, you know, what's been the most important thing is lowest cost of manufacture, just-in-time delivery. And of course, if the chains are well enough organized, it doesn't matter if something's being manufactured in China or Vietnam or wherever, as long as the logistics are good enough, they arrive just in time. Well, of course, based on the profound disruptions of tariffs of COVID-19, of the tragedy that's happening in Ukraine at the moment, we can no longer think about just in time. We have to also think about just in case. And here, Lisa digs in a bit further on that idea. I think that what we're seeing and what our large global customers are thinking about goes a little bit more toward the redundant supply chain. And we are starting to see a little bit about this. People thinking about Asian suppliers, thinking about Japan as a more viable option, a more stable option versus China. I think folks are looking at belt and suspenders. They're looking at local solutions and they're looking at alternative solutions, particularly when they start to think geopolitically. So I'm not sure it's going to go completely back to normal, but I can't see it deglobalizing at all. You know, Rob, this seemed to be a recurring theme, didn't it? Reinforcing supply chains, but not retreating from the global stage. Here's Chip Chaikin from Bluepoint Capital Partners. You know, when you add up all the statistics, you will see probably a reduction in the percent of the global economy that's dependent on global trade. But it's such an industry by industry analysis, because if you think about like, you know, Lisa mentioned copper and wire harnesses like that. If you try and bring that to the U.S., the costs will be insane. We don't have a workforce that does it anymore. We don't have any of the capital capabilities here. So when people do their sort of industry by industry analysis, a lot of times I think even though overall the logic is compelling around deglobalization, you're still going to end up globalized because we just don't have the capabilities anymore. And to Chip's point, it really is an industry by industry situation. To give a look at that, here's Shaharia Shah of ZT Corporate. In healthcare, 60% of medical supplies used to come from outside the world, and out of that 60%, almost 50% from China. Now, it's 20% or even less than that. I would say in our healthcare businesses, everything is bought from U.S. mainland. Number one, obviously because of necessity. Secondly, because of market share. You don't want to lose market share or close your emergency room or hospital for a week because you don't have bed linen, you know? So for our companies, I think they're at a much better spot as an overall industry. 
backed by a private equity company as opposed to public markets, because I think as an industry, we are very agile and very quick to act upon uh, challenge. And some businesses have actually found ways to use these supply chain disruptions as an opportunity. Here's David Taya of InvestCorp talking about how the impact varies in their portfolio. Some of our professional service companies, you know, no direct impact and maybe even some benefit because some of our investments are in consulting firms who may help companies work through some of these challenges. But in our supply chain businesses in particular, we've absolutely seen the impact. We own an aftermarket truck parts business that's providing you know, thousands of SKUs to OEM dealers, to independent dealerships, etc. David is referring here to stock keeping units, those scannable barcodes that are printed onto pretty much everything you can buy in the Western world these days, and original equipment manufacturers, or the vendors that make devices and component parts for other organizations to put into their products. And if we look at their fill rates, you know, pre-pandemic, fill rates were typically in the 90s, as you would expect. Um, You know, good operator, well-run business. They got as low as into the mid-70s at the bottom. Now, we've come back pretty materially, but we're still not back to pre-COVID levels. But we do think that there will be opportunities for things like onshoring. You know, we're doing a lot of industrial service business. So, if there's actually near or onshoring, that's going to create more opportunities, we think, for some of the sectors and subsectors that we look at. And at the same time, for elements of the business that are global, we've just got to price that in. We've mm-hmm. got to make sure that we're able to price in that risk if, in fact, there is some unwind. Even if and hopefully when supply chains improve or are reinforced, there's still no escape from inflation. I got to say, nothing drives me crazier than pretending inflation isn't taking place or that a single policy or politician is responsible for all of it. Tell me about it. It's exactly the type of situation that can't be summed up in a meme. And whatever anyone may believe about it, it's a reality. I personally feel like the overall economic situation is going to get pretty dire before it will get any better. We have rising interest rates, we have 8-9% inflation, we have supply shortages, we are looking at demand pressure building up. Workforce is not there yet. So I think inflation is just another economic indicator, which is just telling us that the overall global economy and especially U.S. economy should brace for impact in the next 24 months. And so we asked about how folks are dealing with that reality. Here's Brian Chu from Centerbridge. On one is measuring it and knowing exactly where it's hitting your P&L. So as you can imagine, it's hitting all parts of it. You got you know input cost, you've got energy cost, labor cost raw materials, et cetera. And then there's pricing. The second step is really pricing for the near term. And I'm going to separate that from my third point, which is pricing for the long term. For the near term, our companies are very focused on, okay, if we're having this inflation come in, how do we price and manage our margins, our cash flow appropriately? And that's everything from you know taking those costs and understanding how they price up, but also managing all the invoice items like freight and things like that. The third thing though, is pricing for the long term because we're seeing also, of course, our customers are then facing that pressure. And so they feel the pressure and some of them are in positions to pass on the cost and some are not. And so short term pricing you can get away with, but also we're trying to build long term value and making sure that we're pricing with that in mind. So, for example, we have a nurse staffing company where wage inflation and demand have far outstripped supply. And so you've seen that wage inflation come through and pricing to our healthcare systems that are you know, paying for this nursing staffing. And so we've raised prices to cover that because obviously we have to pay the nurses a competitive wage, et cetera. But we have compressed our margins during that period. And there's really two reasons. One is 
we want more of the money to go to the nurses because that's an important part of the supply in this business is actually the labor of nursing and making sure that they're getting the wages that make them happy. That creates loyalty to our company and that's important for the long term. And the second thing is for health systems who are getting supported with COVID funding, et cetera, but also making sure that we're partners to them so that we're going to take some margin compression in the meantime to be better partners to our customers in the long term. Chip from Bluepoint adds that inflationary pressure can really throw a wrench into the plan for businesses with long-term pricing contracts. Now in, in the inflationary environment, it's just so critical that everyone understands what their costs are doing, how sticky their pricing is. So you may invest in a business where you think, you know, they have terrific pricing power. We, we made the right decisions from an underwriting standpoint, but they have long-term pricing contracts. For whatever reason, they have a hard time adjusting as quickly as their costs are going up. And then the other thing to keep in mind is a lot of times when we do our underwriting, you know, we think about sort of where their substitution is in their pricing envelope and how high can they get before their customers start to get to where they might be looking at substitutes. Is that all? That sounds like a breeze. What are people complaining about? Well, when inflation shows up, it often drags interest rates right up along with it. And that raises the question, how will those higher interest rates inform investment decisions going forward? Here's Lisa Donahue again. You know, we're in a situation right now, a, a large EPC situation, and we're working with them trying to get financing for the next phase of the project. And, you know, if you think about what our interest rate environment has been for so long, these folks are stunned that the money's just not coming in because it is a worthwhile project. So I think we're going to be looking at companies that had gotten used to easy money, financial reengineering versus potentially really taking a hard look at what to deal with some underlying factors. I think that's going to start to become more and more of a problem. David Taya gives some examples of how different industries have unique needs in a higher interest rate environment. You know, because we don't max leverage at the margin, we're less impacted by it. But I think I would go in the order of hierarchy of what segments get hurt most. On our industrial side, we own two businesses tied to road construction, road paving, infrastructure, and then another one on the energy side, you know, very similar demand drivers. So pretty modest impact by rate increase. I think in some of our consulting businesses, our professional services businesses, I think we'll actually see some pickup because it's going to cause our underlying clients to need more help as their cost base goes up. And then a business like one of our supply chain businesses, uh, Fortune Fish, where we're selling fresh frozen seafood, high-end meat products to both retail, to Whole Foods, for example, as well as to the food service. So there, that's a B2B supply chain business, but ultimately it's a consumer, either at a restaurant or in a supermarket. Brian Chu says that direct changes to portfolio companies' pricing schemes is only one way to combat these higher rates. So we've been very focused across our portfolio of extending and even increasing our hedge positions on interest rates. And then we do have a few businesses that are very tightly impacted by interest rates. These are our housing and loan origination businesses. And so obviously we're looking at demand implications for those businesses as well as interest rates have increased and how that impacts demand and therefore the operating business and profitability across those two things. You know, there may even be a silver lining to these higher interest rates. Shahari Shah at ZT Corporate says that business executives are going to have to adjust their calculus to factor them in. The valuations all across the board have been like so high for the last couple of years. And with this rising interest rate, I think that will slow down and 
more importantly for stuff which is coming in the market for add-ons or platform acquisition. If the business cannot really absorb 200 basis points, it's set for a low interest rate environment. And that shouldn't be the case for a good going concern business. So interest rates will be high for three years and, and that's just a fact of an economic cycle. Yeah. And it will be back again to a lower rate. But I think uh, artificial lower rates for such a long period of time have kind of like trained executives not to think about interest rates at all. You know, everyone's been complaining about high valuations for so long, you'd think they'd be thrilled. But I don't think anyone wants what comes with lower asset prices. But that raises the question. How do private markets operators really see this environment that's so volatile and unpredictable? There's definitely an upside and some opportunities, as we've discussed, but what does it mean for the health of investing and IRRs over the next few years? Lisa Donahue is optimistic. I'm actually kind of bullish. And the reason why I'm kind of bullish is private equity operating executives are used to handling different types of volatility. Now, maybe they're not used to dealing with it, handling it all at once, like we're dealing with right now. So I think that the flexibility, the agility, the looking around corners, the data analytics, the helping executives kind of figure this out and go through it. I think that's a tried and true approach. I do. Brian Chu points to one of his firm's investments that has adapted to the challenging new environment, and it's a great example of finding an opportunity to create new value in the midst of disruption. I think of you know, Great Wolf Resorts as our indoor water park and family entertainment business. And it's a perfect example of a great team who's you know been really resilient. This is a company that was really growing fast, building new lodges, you know, hit by COVID. Everything shut down for six months. You know, they had to deal with a complete shutdown of their business, zero revenue, right? And then the gates opened back up, their lodges opened up, demand shot through the roof. They've had to then restaff, you know, all these lodges. In addition to that, we were building new lodges on top of that. So they're building back their core business, they're adding new businesses, and we're doing international expansion. So this company has managed all of that. And the other thing I'd add is private equity owners, we just have to make sure they have the capital structure to do that. So it's really important that obviously we're working closely with the management team to understand liquidity needs, financing needs, compensation requirements, et cetera, to make sure they can build the teams and uh, invest in the companies the appropriate way. Chip Chaikin builds on this point, saying that agility is key. It starts at the underwriting, you know, to make sure that we're investing in a business that's got a flexible business model, that's got a highly variable cost structure, it's got a core competency that could be extended into other industries when things maybe are more attractive somewhere else. But making sure you're investing in businesses that are fundamentally flexible when you invest in them, having the right capital structure so you've got cash to take advantage of opportunities, because I do think this could be the best time for all of us. And making sure that the business has the cash to do that, that you've embedded the capabilities in the business through data analytics so it can know what's going on around it and be flexible. And that you act with a lot of speed, which is something probably also that all of us have that lots of companies that don't have private equity may not have exactly that sense of urgency and speed. And here, Simon Freakley takes it one step further. I think if there's one lesson that we've all learned from the last few years is that we can't be a hostage to any strategy. We have to remain fleet of foot, that actually we have to disrupt ourselves before other people disrupt us, either our competitors or larger public companies, activists. How we remain agile and execute on our existing strategy with an eye to how that strategy needs to change. And so we say to management teams, literally pace over perfection. 
Don't wait for the perfect strategy. Just lean in and start executing the strategy that works today. And finally, David Taya really boils down the point. If a disruption event happens, that's the opportunity. If you've really got you know, your game together, you've got the right resources, you've got the right capital available, you've got the right leadership and management team where you can take share. If you can service that customer and you can get that product, you can provide that service, you can get people, you can get talent and you can keep them. That's an ability to really take share shift in times of volatility and disruption. And we have seen that across a number of our companies. Folks do forget how often private markets have made their name in eras of extreme volatility and recessions. After 2008, the whole sector only exploded in growth and expertise. The fact of the matter is, this isn't 2008. Do you think they'll find the right systems and solutions for the moment? Well, something that you hear a lot in this industry is, I don't have a crystal ball, but my guess is that the firms who thrive in this era will have bragging rights for years to come. But in our next episode, we'll talk about another form of disruption that keeps most of us up at night, cybersecurity. Join us for that conversation in two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts.